Do you have a date yet? Yeah. There you go. There you go. Love it, right? Yes, there's his fiance. Stand up. Stand up, Lauren. Stand up. Come on, stand up. Stand up. Come on, stand up. Yeah. Right? This is awesome. They dated, they dated for a long time. It's about time, right? You would say amen. Amen, right? Amen. Hey, listen, we are glad that you are here, and uh, we are glad that you have uh, chosen to be with us this morning. Uh, I'm Steve Hambrick, I, and uh, one of the pastors here at Vintage, and and uh, listen, we are, um, man, let me just say, uh, and, and with this stirring, even this morning as I woke up, as we were in prayer, listen, if you want to come pray with us every Sunday morning at 8 a.m., we're right here praying. We'd love to invite all of you to come and to pray with us. It's like every Sunday morning, God just speaks. Graham comes. He's, he's faithful, right? Comes and prays. And we, this, I'm going to give you freedom. We yawn as we pray because it is still pretty early on Sunday morning, right? But we come and we pray. And the idea is like, God, we just want to, we want to be with you before we come into church, right? Before we gather together. And, and uh, so this morning, God just, you know, speaking. I, and I don't know. I just came this morning with a level of excitement of what he's doing. I don't know exactly what it is, but I just sense him doing something new. I, to be honest with you, it's like, have you ever had that moment? This is not part of our message, so forgive me for kind of going off on a little tangent this morning. But have you had one of those moments when you were a kid when, when all of a sudden, like you were in trouble, and all of a sudden your dad showed up? Did you ever have one of those moments when you were growing up? Like you're in trouble, like someone's about to beat you. If I had one of those moments, I shared the story before. I had a moment, my kids love to hear me tell the story. I've told it before at Vintage, let me tell you again. I had one of those moments, I was six years old, this kid named Tim. I was in first grade, he was in fourth grade. I said something to him because I can just speak with my mouth sometimes, things I shouldn't say, right? I said something to Tim, he was much older than me, and he decided to put me into a headlock and started choking me. And all of my friends who were about my age were around going, oh like this right and i hear all this noise happening like and, and like enough noise is going on where my dad's close enough right and so we're making this noise true story and all of a sudden all of a sudden like i hear something behind me like a large animal come trait like we're talking like this massive steps right come and there's this massive hill like that i i sl- i'm scared to slide down and all of a sudden tim and chokehold turns me right and i see my dad coming down the hill at full pace taking like 15 foot steps in between steps and he's like G- goliath wa- running down the hill and all of a sudden tim just lets go and i look at him and he turns pale white because he knows it's my dad right and all of a sudden my dad just stops and he goes what's going on here (laughs) and tim goes nothing nothing at all and he takes off and starts running right and all of a sudden in that moment i'm like oh and that's right you better be running off you know the type of moment right and my dad just comes and grabs me right he just has me in the moment that's what it was like when i prayed this morning in the midst of everything going on, I had this awareness of the presence of Dad, right? And I can't, I can't explain it to you better than what I just told you in that story. But like, there's just a stirring inside of me, right, in the moment of like, Dad is present. And dad has put his hand down and dad's moving and I know he's, I'm, I'm, and listen, I don't have to stand behind him because he's invited me to stand beside him. 
He had, like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm not standing behind Dad. He said, won't you come right here, son, right? And there's this thing, right? There's, Revelation tells us that, that Jesus, right, he's, on a, he's on, a, on a white horse, and his robe is dipped in blood with eyes like fire, right? He doesn't say, get behind me. He's saying, get beside me, and let's win the battle together. And so I want to encourage you this morning, right? I want to encourage you this morning, no matter where you are with Jesus and where you are in life, I want you to know that there is a Father, Father who is waiting to invite you, who is inviting you, actually, to come. He's fighting fighting for you. He's fighting for us. And so I want to kind of give you that picture as we dive in this morning, right? That it is this context of relationship, relationship is a defining word that will be with us for the next six weeks. We're starting into our study, God's at War. It's our small group study. We are very excited about it right here. Here's all the things that are going on. As you see, we are in the week of October 6th, right? Small groups are beginning this week. I think Reynolds already told you that, right? But listen, I want to go ahead and just say to you, um, I know some of you are not doing our study with this, right? You're not part of a small group. We have like 100, a little less than 100 people who are signed up. Vintage is much larger than that. So I know some of you are not in a small group, and, and, and that's, that's, that's okay. We would still like for you to get into one if you can. But here's what I'm asking you to do. Listen, here's what I'm asking you to do if, you, if you're not going to be part of a small group. I'm asking you to do two things. I'm asking you to be, listen, I'm asking you to be here every Sunday for the next six weeks, right? I don't, I've never asked that. I don't think I've ever asked you that in my life. Please be here in the next six weeks. I'm saying, please be here for the next six weeks. I'm not commanding you, but with great urgency, I'm asking you to be here, okay? Why? Because we're going somewhere together. So I'm asking you for the, so one, to be here for the Sunday so you can hear the messages, right? If, it, and so, and, and number two, right? If you if you're not if if you um, if you're not in a small group, look, I'm asking you to get one of these. I think it's like for 40 days of the combat journal. It's a 10. It's a 10. Probably about 10 minutes a day. It's eight dollars. Okay, eight dollars. Right. I want you to get these books. Basically, the Gods at War combat journals. Basically, how powerful can it be if every single one of us are having Ten minutes a day covering the exact same thing as a church. Do you see that? That every day for 40 days, for ten minutes a day, we're reading the exact same thing and doing the exact same thing. Do you know what happens when we pursue Jesus at the same time with the same purpose? You get unified. Listen, let me tell you something about unity. Unity does not mean you go to football games together and watch movies together and hang out together. Unity, listen, you can be unified with a person if you are spending time with yourself by Jesus, praying and going after the same thing. You see that? If you're going after the same thing, studying the same thing, you find yourself unified and your hearts knit together because A.W. Tozer says it well. He said, listen, he said, he said, if you want to be unified, stop spending so much time together and spend time in prayer. Because as you focus on the same, listen, as you focus on the same destination, you find yourselves getting to the same destination. Right. And so I want to encourage you with the next 40 days, the next six weeks. Right. I encourage you to get the combat journal 10 minutes a day. Let's be unified. It's only eight bucks, 16 bucks for a for a couple. Right. And I'm going to encourage you, encourage you, encourage you, urge you with everything inside of me to please, please, please. Let's do this study and every all of this together.
for the next 40 days. Because what will happen if we do, something will happen. Something will happen that I believe will transform you and transform the community around us. That's why we're here, community transformation. Okay? So let's do that. So, so as we dive in this morning, God's at war. This is the first of our six-week study. How it's going to begin right here. It's beginning in the context of what we've already named from Revelation chapter 2. This context of relationship. We are in relationship with God. We are in relationship with Him. Relationship, we see it begin with God and humanity in the Garden of Eden, don't we? In Genesis, God creates everything. He creates man and woman says, and it was good. Right. And we see this dynamic of relationship of him walking with man and woman together in the garden. And all of a sudden something happens and relationship is broken. Why? Because of disobedience and because of sin. Right. And so then we see the rest. Listen, the rest of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus. Listen, Bible 101. It's real simple. What is the Old Testament about? Let me tell you. It's about God creating man falling and God fighting for restoration for relationship with his with creation. He wants to restore that relationship that he had with them in the Garden of Eden. And so then we see that we see we see with Adam and Eve, we see it with we see it with uh, with with their children. We see it then with Noah. We see it with Abram and Abraham. We see it with Isaac. We see it with Joseph. We see it with all the descendants. Right. And we see this relationship, him pursuing them. God is a God of relationship leading all the way up, all the way up then to to Moses where he calls the people out of Egypt, and then he then Moses dies, and then he raises up Joshua. Right? It's this beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. And so what we so I want you to begin with, I want you to understand this relationship, and something happens in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter four, God has what I, what we would consider to be a marriage ceremony. A marriage ceremony with God's, with his people, right? How many of you know that, that it was not an arranged marriage like it was in Judaism, God with his people. It was chosen. God looked at all the peoples of the earth and he found this small, minuscule, the least of the least type people named the Jews. He said, I choose you to be in relationship with. And then in chapter four of Deuteronomy, he basically has vows with them. How many of you remember your vows when you were when you got married? Listen, I was going to read you kind of basically what was said to Randall and I when we got married. It says, will you, Steve, have Randall to be your wife to live together in holy marriage? Will you love her, comfort, honor, and keep keep her in sickness and in health? And listen, and forsaking forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. And I said. I will. And in that moment, all the other lovers that were behind me, because there was a long, long list of them, okay? I'm just saying, right? No. Seriously, all the other lovers that are back here, I turned my back to every single one of them, and I said, Randall, I choose you before family and friends and before God. 
and I forsake all of them, or the couple, or maybe one of them, maybe, right? And I, and I get, and I forsake all of them, I'll be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. In Deuteronomy 4, God has this moment with his people. He says in verse 15, right? Verse 15, Deuteronomy 4 says, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. There's a moment Moses had this moment when the, in the burning bush. And he said, listen, there was no form. There was nothing to create out of that. Nothing that you would have a picture of what I look like, right? It was just me in a bush. You saw no form. Therefore, because you saw no form, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air, like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. He's basically saying this, stop bowing down to my gifts that I've given you. These things are gifts to us. They're like part of like they're like like marriage gifts. Hey, we're getting married. Here are my gifts to you. All of this stuff. So don't bow down and worship them. They belong to you. They're your gifts. So stop doing that. But as for you, verse 20, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace. Basically means it's really, really hot and can burn things and melt things, right? Brought you out of the furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you are now. What he's saying right there is, listen, stop down and worshiping these things because you are receiving my inheritance. You, I said, I forsake all others and I'm faithful to you. And I said, here are all my blessings. Here's my inheritance, right? So the establishment, God establishes this marriage relationship, this covenant with his people. But he looks at them because he knows us. Like, you know yourself. He knows you. He knows and Humanity is prone, right, prone to look to other lovers. That they're prone to go, I'm faithful to you as long as both shall live. What's up? Right? They'll do that. By human nature, he knows that we are prone to idolatry, to look to other places. That's why just a few verses later, he looks at the Ten Commandments, right? Again, he's setting about, listen, the Ten Commandments are, and the, and his, and his, his, uh, these, these uh, commands he gives, they're simply boundaries for our marriage covenant relationship with him. Just like the boundaries you committed to when you got married. There's no difference. And so he sets the boundary and says, listen, Bert, the very first thing he says is, you shall have no other gods before me. It's commandment number one. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. Why does he say that? Because he recognizes our issues. See, here's the thing. I want you to write this down. It's on the screen. Idolatry is a primary issue God names as the reason we may break our covenant relationship with him. All of us have been called to relationship, and all of us are prone to commit and then turn around. We're all prone to look to other lovers. We're all prone to look, to look to an idol, something that we give our affection to, something we make a priority and to give preeminence to in our life. And I would say that this is still true today. Os Guinness points that out. He says, idolatry 
is the most discussed problem in the Bible. The primary issue that's named in Scripture that human beings face in their commitment to Jesus and the breaking of the commitment is idolatry. Most discussed problem in the Bible and one of the most powerful spiritual and intellectual concepts in the believer's arsenal yet for Christians today is one of the most or the least meaningful notions or I would say least talked about truths. The whole subject of idols to us almost seems obsolete, doesn't it? Because who really ever actually goes into someone's home and finds this, this little gold image there that they're saying, hold on, before you walk in, let's bow down to the idol, right? We don't, I don't know, I haven't walked into many homes recently where I found some idols that people are literally bowing down to like, like we see discussed about in the Old Testament, right? Idolatry seems so primitive, therefore so irrelevant to us, yet, yet in Scripture, idolatry, it is the number one issue in the Bible. And it was number one talked about, both in Old Testament, like the old part that nobody reads anymore, and the new part that we think is this, we talk about the New Testament, the new part we like to read, right? In both parts, idolatry is a primary subject that comes into every book. More than 50 of the laws in the first five books of the Bible are all about idolatry and aimed at this issue. In fact, in Judaism, idolatry is one of the four sins which the death penalty was attached to. It's a big deal. Idolatry is a big deal. And as we look at life then through this lens and this lens of idolatry, here's what becomes clear. In every human being from Old Testament to New Testament to today, there is a war going on inside of us between primary lovers and things that we give our affection to and give our primary energies to. Whether you've been a Christian for a day, a week, a month, or 45 years or longer, each of us have to wrestle with the reality that our hearts are prone to give ourselves to other lovers. The gods are at war. And I don't mean gods like God with his equals. I mean all of these things that strive to take the place on our hearts of, of priority that belongs to God, right? You get a picture of that. Right now, this is my seat this morning, okay? And, and this is the seat that I'm supposed to be sitting in. But what would happen if all of a sudden, right, someone else came and took, no, no, this is my seat. I'm sitting here, right? This is your seat. Someone says, no, no, no. Let me have your, I'm taking your seat. No, you can't do this. This is my seat. I'm sitting in my seat. And so God says, this is my seat. My, my, your heart is my seat. I'm the Lord. And remember, we talk, we've been talking about this idea, this journey of salvation that we're on, that we cross the threshold from our personal kingdom into the kingdom of God and then every day then he is the Lord and the king. Basically, he's number one in our lives. But the major thing that we wrestle with in our life is then trading his number one to making something or someone else number one in life. The gods are at war and their strength their strength is not to be underestimated. You know, Tim Keller made a great point, and so I was listening to it the other day. He said, he said, the Bible really is ambivalent about the power of idols. He said, reality is, idols in and of themselves have no power. But the enemy, through the idols, 
has unbelievable power. Right? That the idols themselves, the, the, in our culture, the money or the jobs, the career, this, they don't have power, but the enemy uses them in our lives to have power and to gain control of us. And so we have this whole tension, right, that everything about me, everything I do, every relationship I have, everything I hope or dream or wish to become, it depends on what God wins the war for my heart. And so for our lives then, it's not going to be statues, is it, right? We're not going to have these deities with weird and strange names to burn incense to, right? And bow down three times and do sort of things with my hands and spin around in circles and cut myself like the Old Testament, right? You don't see, you don't see any of that, right? But what if we do our kneeling and our bowing? Listen, everyone pay attention. We're getting now into kind of the practicalities of what idols look like for us. What if we do our, listen, what if we do our kneeling and our bowing with our imaginations or our checkbooks or our search engines on the World Wide Web as we know it? Or what if we bow down to our calendars, which means our time? What if we bow down in these areas? Because the gods that we face, listen, they can be Anything, anything in our lives. Let me just name a few that I think that evangelical Christians, people in the churches around us, and the people that you know of, say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, right? Here are the things that I believe we face. I probably shouldn't name them because you may go, well, I'm not one of those. But I'm going to say, this is just the beginning of an inexhaustible list. Do you hear that? This is the beginning, right? I'm just going to give you like this, this, this line, and there's lots of lines underneath, right? Family can be an idol. Listen, I would say this, and the next one is children. I believe that one of the number one idols in the lives of women, particularly in the evangelical Christian church, is their children, it's also dads who try to live vicariously through their son or daughter in some lame sport that they're never really going to succeed at all that well. Come on, child, get out there. Come on, just whatever, right? And they're trying to replay those moments. They wanted to be a linebacker at Georgia. Never could quite make it, but their son, by God, is going to be that, right? And they give all their time and energy and make their son an idol, and their son can never actually attain to what their dad wants them to be. So they always feel like they're failing in their dad's eyes because their dad made their son a stinking idol. Children are an idol. Career is an idol. Romantic relationships are an idol. Beauty in you, listen, or beauty in your partner can become idols. Your moral record, this is really big in the South, right? High morality, even though we're like sinning all day, don't make sure nobody sees it, right? But your moral record, your ministry success, making money, your personal achievement, your critical acclaim, your competence in something, your skill, your, your ability in your brain. People make an idol of being really smart, right? Or their political or their social records. I'm a Republican. I'm a card-carrying Republican, by God. Right? I am conservative. And that becomes an idol. Do you know anybody like that on the radios these days? 
So let's stop and just define what is an idol. I stole this from Tim Keller. He's smarter than all of us put together, right? What is an idol? He said this. It's on the screen. Anything in your life that is so central to your being that you cannot have a meaningful life if you lose it. Anything in your life that is so central to your being that you cannot have a meaningful life if you lose it. AKA, AKA, if I lose it, I am not sure how I can live. If I have it, I have meaning. And all of us wrestle. What if I told you that, listen, what if I said to you that every sin you are struggling with, listen, this is going to be hard for you to hear, so I want you to hear it. What if I told you that every sin you are struggling with, every, listen, Every discouragement that you are dealing with, even the lack of the purpose you're living with, is because of idolatry. What if, I'll read it again, what if every sin you're struggling with, every discouragement you're dealing with, even the lack of purpose you're living with, is because of idolatry? You perpetually wrestle in life and never seem to be on top of something. It's because of idolatry in your life. So a man wakes up every day and he coughs. He coughs all day long. He can't make it. He can't do it. Like everywhere he goes, he can't sleep at night. He can't work well because he's coughing. He's coughing and coughing. So finally, like most men do, the very last minute they go to the doctor. Walk in the doctor's office, begin to run some tests. Doctor comes, doctor looks at it and says, oh my gosh, this guy's lung cancer. But I'm too afraid, listen, isn't this true in church? I know what your problem is, idolatry, but I'm too afraid to tell you because I'm afraid you might stop tithing and you might stop coming to my church and go to the church down the road. So I'm not going to be honest with you. So the doctor comes in and says, hey, here's some cough suppressant. Take it. And your cough will go away. And the guy's like, oh, that's fantastic. Thank you, right? So he goes off. He gets his cough medicine. He takes it. And his cough begins to go away while the entire time his lung cancer is growing inside of him in the process of killing him. You see, I've come to this reality that every Sunday... People walk into church, they share their struggles, they unload their frustrations, they express their discouragement, they display their wounds, they confess their sins, and it's just the fruit of the cancer of idolatry that is killing them from the inside out. Every day people come in, they're struggling, they're, think about the things we, that are like coughing, we struggle, hurting, stressing, cheating, lusting, spending, worrying, quitting, self-medicating, avoiding, and searching. All of these issues, and all of them have their core in idolatry. All of them. They can't stop, they can't stop stuff, they can't stop coughing. All of the fruit is here of this deep, embedded idolatry. Turn to Joshua 24. Joshua 24. So Joshua, obviously, if you don't know, Moses died. After Deuteronomy, Moses died. It's this beautiful picture then. Moses died. Joshua comes alongside of him, right? Takes his place and becomes the the leader of the Israelites. It's a beautiful picture, right, of him, of his mentor, Moses. And Moses says, I now pass on this to you. And Joshua becomes the leader. And he actually gets to lead him into the promised land. So the very first, and and he comes, he's about to die. 
He's about to die. In fact, you see in the next chapter, 25, Joshua dies. And so like any good father, any good leader, at the end of his life, he brings all of his children together. He says, children, come here real quick. Let me tell you a story. Let's talk, right? And basically, he says, I'm about to die. But before I die, I want to get some things straight with you. He draws them and he says, let me tell you the story of God. See, what he's about to do, listen, he's about to renew their vows. Have you ever been to your, have your parents or somebody you ever know, a little bit older, done that? They've been married for a long period of time, but they just want to express their love for another again, so they, so they have a time of renewing their vows, saying, I forsake, I forsook all others and committed to you, and I want to say it again, right? I'm forsaking all others still, and I'm turning towards you, and Joshua has that moment in Joshua 24. He comes in the very, in the first 13 verses, and he just tells the story of God and his people. You remember, you remember when we came into the promised land together? Oh, yeah. Remember when we came to the walls of Jericho and God fought for us and the walls fell? Oh, I remember that. Remember when we, remember when we came to the Jordan River and, and the leader stepped into the river and the river parted just like the Red Sea did with Moses and we walked across on dry land? Oh, we remember, right? He's telling the story, right? He's telling this beautiful story of, of the people and with their God who loves them. And he says in verse 14 and 15, I've told the story about our love and renewing of our vows. Now, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose. You're at a crossroads, right? Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But I want to tell you, as for me and my household, we by God will serve the Lord. Do you see what he's doing in the moment? He's having this moment of telling the story. He says, you've turned to other lovers. You've turned around, and I'm letting you know at the end of my life, you have a, you're at a crossroad moment. Either serve God or don't. Because God will not stand for lukewarmness. He will spew you out of your mouth, out of his mouth, right? He will not stand for that. So either choose, be hot or cold, be one or the other. Today, I choose to be hot. We will serve the Lord myself and my entire family. And so in this, what we find, right, we find number one is this. We, we find this understanding that all of us are worshipers, all of us are worshipers. Tim Keller says, every indi- listen, every individual will rely on something in their life or someone because we all create pseudo-saviors. We look to something to give us life. We get to, we look to someone to ultimately bring us joy. If you ever read Romans 1, I encourage you, it paints the picture of what this looks like. Joshua presents them with different options. If you can worship this, you can worship this, you can worship this. But one of the options is not E, none of the above. Remember that? I used to hate those on, on those tests you'd take. 
None of the above. Oh, great. Which one do I choose now? It's going to be that one, right? Joshua says, no, no, no. We cancel that one out because all of you are worshiping something or you're worshiping someone. Whether you are a Christian or you are not a Christian, you are worshiping something or someone. Peter Kraft says this, philosopher, he says, the opposite of theism, listen, it's right here, the opposite of theism is not atheism. Theism is the belief in God. The atheism is the belief there is no God. So the opposite of theism is not atheism. It's idolatry. There is, listen, either we're worshiping God or we're worshiping something else. There's no middle ground. So understand that all of us are worshiping something. Something is in the seat that belongs to God, whether it's God or someone. Either we have stayed true to our covenant, to our commitment, to our marriage to God, we see defined for us in Deuteronomy 4, or we have turned to other lovers like Joshua's naming here. And he's saying, listen, all of you are worshiping something. All of you give priority and preeminence to something. So he goes on, number two, we, then, we need to identify the gods at war for your heart. What are the other lovers? What are the other affections? What are these things over here? We have to name them. Here are some diagnostic questions. How many of you, listen, when you go and you get, you get your car worked on, you sit there and say, all right, help us diagnose what's going on. What do you, what, what do you hear? So you're like, well, it's going clunk, 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 right? You're diagnosing the problem in your car. So here's some diagnostic questions to help you answer what are the gods or who is hopefully the God I'm worshiping. Number one, what are you most disappointed with in life? Here's the whole list. Take your phone out, take a picture of it, write them down. I don't care how you do it. I want you to ask yourself these questions this week. Listen, if you're going, oh, I don't need to ask those, or I'm too cool to do that. You're not too cool. That's probably an idol in your heart of your own self-righteousness, thinking that you're okay before God, that you're not going to ask yourself these questions. Can I name that? All right, here we go. So here are the questions. And you're like, how dare he say that? Uh, whatever. Here we go. First question. What are you most disappointed with? Because what we are most disappointed with often reveals where we have put our hope. And where we put our hope reveals our God. What are we most disappointed with? Because that's the thing we're putting our hope in to bring joy and satisfaction and fulfillment to our lives. Second question. What do you sacrifice your time and money for? If you've ever been in church, you've heard people ask this question. Where do you spend your money, right? But the word serve, listen, it appears seven times in Joshua's speech. And who or what you serve is revealed by how you spend your time. I mean, time, I would say time, honestly, in our culture, what we spend our time with is actually more important than we spend our money on. Because time, I believe, is the greatest idol we face in our culture. I don't have, how many things I don't have time for, right? And so time is this thing, right? Time is this thing. And so what do you sacrifice your time money for? And see, where do you go when you're hurt? This is the really big one. Who do you go to? What do you go to? Where do you go to when you are hurt? Where do you go for comfort? Listen, if something, listen, this is a big pet peeve of mine. An issue happens and you need to pick the phone up and call three people. That, to me, is a major, major issue of an idol in your heart. 
You don't ever call someone when an issue arises. You immediately go to God because he's the only one who can fix it. So the third thing, Joshua gets that very clearly, make a worship choice today. You're at a crossroads. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't really matter. You have a choice. You're worshiping something. Make a worship choice today. Joshua says, choose this day. It's a present tense imperative, basically meaning this. Every day. You don't choose once. You chose yesterday. You choose today. And you will choose again tomorrow. Listen, we talked about very clearly, salvation is not a moment that it happened in time. Salvation is something that happens every day. I chose Jesus, I choose him again today, and I will choose him again tomorrow. It is wrong for salvation to be thought of as a one-day event. It is an everyday God saved me, he is saving me today, and he will save me again tomorrow because I need him every day. I'm a living sacrifice every day, right? Appreciate. Listen, Make a worship choice today. So in that, what do we do? We appreciate what God has done. Listen, in verse 2 and 13, Joshua recounts the incredible things that God has done. He reminds them, listen, so you have to make a worship choice before you, as you stand on the cross, or before you make a choice, before you make a choice, don't forget what God has done. Guys, why don't you listen to me? I am a pastor who is 100% male and a Good-looking woman walks into my scene, and I have to struggle to not look at her like every single one of you. And when those moments in my mind, listen, when the word, when the enemy, when like my, my own voice, the enemy comes and says, why don't you cheat on your wife with her? Have you ever had that voice? Right? How many of you had that voice? Do not lie to yourself. You're before God. You have that voice. Let me tell you what I do. Very practically speaking, every single time that voice comes, I retell my story of Randall in my life. I tell the story of when I met her. This happens like this, right? Happens like this. You know it just like this. I tell the story of when I met her. I remember the good times and the laughs we've had. I remember the bad times we've had to work through that have caused us to be stronger. I think about our sex life together and how great that is. I think about our children. Listen, I think about our children and how, and it's our children and what they mean to us, right? I think about our children, the story. I think about, I think about how, how excited we are about our children leaving our house so we can just live our lives together and do whatever we want to because by god we're going to enjoy life when our kids leave to the fullest right without having to wake up early go pick them up at stupid softball games by god we're going to enjoy life together and i go how can i cheat on that when i have that to cheapen it with something like that get behind me we have to retell the story and our primary lover I look and say, God, look what you have done. The second thing, recognize who God is. God's not someone you cheat on. Oh, think about how bad it would be, men, if you cheated on your wife. Woo! She'd bring down the hammer, and it would not be a happy moment in your home. God is holy and does not stand for cheaters. And that's why it says in verse 19, here Joshua reminds the people, hey, don't, don't forget, God is holy And he is jealous. He is a jealous lover. And when something stands in the midst of this relationship, a third party is invited, that party isn't going to last real long. He is a jealous lover. And the third thing, he tells us very clearly, smash all other gods. Verse 23 says, 
Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. See, we're standing in a moment where God says, listen, to every single one of you individually, I don't care where you are in life, you are always staying at a crossroads because other lovers are always clamoring for your attention and trying to rip you away from God. And some of you right now are in the midst ignorantly of worshiping other idols. You have the struggling, the hurting, the stressing, the cheating, the lusting, the spinning, the worrying, all these things. You have your children. You have your career. You have all these idols in your life that are taking priority and preeminence in your life. And God is standing in the moment saying, I love you too much because of my relationship with you defined in Deuteronomy 4. I am, I, you may have forgotten our marriage together, but I never will. And I love you too much to let idols stay in your life. So I will Pull them out. I will come against them with everything I have in me because I love you too much to let them stay. And so he comes to the moment right now. He's saying, I am in the midst of exposing every idol in your life and in Steve Hambrick's life. And I'm not going to be satisfied until every other lover has been pushed away and you forsake them and you're only faithful to me. This week, small groups start. I want you in your group, you're going to discuss all of these things. Let me tell you, Acts 19 is very clear. You may look at this sometime, but Acts 19 is very clear. When you begin to infringe on the area where idols are living and they are active, chaos happens. Chaos happens because they want to fight for your heart. And so my great concern is that in your humanity, you're going to say, I can't deal with this. And so you stay where you are, dying a slow and miserable death with the idol that can never ultimately satisfy, continue to satisfy you less and less and less and less and less. Let's pray. Father, as we sit in this moment, God, we come sober saying and recognizing, God, that this is not a message that we just say, hey, let me chalk that one up and give it to somebody else because they really need to hear this. God, this is the word for each of us. It's the word from Genesis to Revelation about we struggle with, with, with men, we, with, our, with, our, with the gods of our heart. We see it even pictured in, Roman, in Revelation chapter 2. It says you have forsaken your first love. You've turned to another lover. This church that experienced massive revival, a city that had experienced an outpouring of your spirit. The whole city, every single one of them, the millions of people had heard the name Jesus. And so, Father, we come into this moment and say, God, as we, as we launch into this study, Holy Spirit, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you lovingly put your finger on our hearts? And God, may we not walk in condemnation, which leads to regret and death. But we invite conviction, which always leads to hope and to life. Maybe like the prodigal son who had made an idol out of money and of pleasure. And you put your finger on his heart and you convicted him. And it led him to be brought back into the family. But the robe of many colors and the ring on his finger signified and, and a party thrown for him. Father, when we get to the crossroad and choose you, you throw a party.
And so, Holy Spirit, we ask for help and direction today to make this happen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.